0: Good morning uh, i 'm Jomo Thompson. though really, if your name is Jomo, you don 't need a last name to like <laughs> distinguish yourself.' Just like which, which Jomo did you mean um, Jomo thompson i 'm one of the elders right now um, uh, serving the church, and uh, this morning we 're going to be concluding uh, the time that we 've spent in the Sermon on the Mount for the last six months or so. Um, And it's been uh, quite a journey, a lot of challenging messages, a lot of wonderful messages, things for us to think about and put into practice, which is actually how Jesus himself chose to end the Sermon on the Mount, a call to his people to do it, to put into practice what they had heard him say. And that is what we'll be looking at today, Um, but before that, let's pray. God, we can't put your words into practice without your help. We can't even understand your words without your help. I cannot do anything to help anyone in this room or online um, grasp your word without your help. And so this morning we ask for your help, your presence, your guidance, your wisdom, your mind helping our mind, your spirit helping our spirit, that we can know what you want and have the strength and the power and the love to do it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So the Sermon on the Mount uh, began with some vision casting from Jesus. A blessing had come. The kingdom had come. And then he, he gave the people listening to him a sense of why he was going to be talking to them, that they were the light of the earth, the salt of the earth, and that he had come to fulfill the law, not to do away with it, but to fulfill it, and then launched into a series of specific teachings on aspects of the law, giving his commentary so that the people would understand how the law was to be put into practice. And then he closed it with what we've been doing for the last month, a series of summaries. A summary that if you just can't remember everything it says, love a person as you would want to be loved. And if you're overwhelmed by what you hear, what you've heard, call out to Jesus for help. And then a series of warnings about a narrow gate and a wide gate. Um, You know, a plant that produces fruit and a plant that produces thorns. People who just spout Jesus' name, but they don't really do what he says. And then our last kind of admonition, warning, exhortation um, that we're going to look at today is in Matthew 24 uh, to 29. Familiar to to many of us, I'm sure, but here we have Jesus' words about the importance of obeying Jesus' words. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And this conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount, this dissertation that Jesus has given on God's ways comes with a calling. He has been step-by-step, law-by-law, rule not rule-by-rule, rule, but rule-by-rule, <laughs> Um, talking about here's what to do, and then it ends with a calling to put it into action. This is interestingly similar to the way that the law of Moses concludes, Um, which the law of Moses, first um, few books of the Bible, the Old Testament, uh, during the life of Moses, uh, his exodus, taking the people out of Israel, they had the law of God revealed to them. When you hear the law of Moses, it refers to a series of laws and commissions and, and precepts in four books of the Bible, Exodus, Numbers, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, tells the story of Moses' life, and a series of laws that are collectively thought of by the Jewish people as the law of Moses. And it ends almost the exact same way that the Sermon on the Mount ends. And I just want to show you some of those parallels uh, here. So this verse we're going to look at here—I know uh, a lot of scripture on the front end— um, comes from the book of Deuteronomy, which is the final book of the law of Moses. Uh, Right at the very, very end, Moses said to the people, Deuteronomy 30, 15, See, this is Moses speaking, but prophesying on God's behalf. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are, en- you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice, and hold fast to him. That's the end of the law of Moses. Strikingly similar to the way Jesus is closing out his Sermon on the Mount with a series of couplets. Note the parallels, right? We have a narrow gate and a wide gate, and life and death, and uh, fruit and thorns, and blessings and curses, and now a house that stands and a house that, that falls. Another parallel to both is that God's word, God's ways, doing God's ways is meant to be a blessing and was always meant to be a blessing, right? If there's a storm coming toward you, And you have a choice between a house that will survive the storm and one that will be crushed. Surviving the storm is a blessing. If you're hungry and you see a a, a bush and there's, you know, a vine with fruit and a vine with thorns, the fruit is the blessing. And Moses meant for the law to be the same. Do this so that you will have life, so that things will go well for you. Often we think of Or here it said that the the law is like a burden. It's it's a set of rules that God has put on us, a straitjacket to hold us back. But that is not the intent, and it was never the intent. Um, But there's a couple differences, too, in what Jesus said versus what Moses had said. And the first is that Moses was a prophet telling people to put God's word into practice. Jesus closed his Sermon on the Mount audaciously telling people to put his words into practice. No more of a prophet saying, yeah, there's this wonderful God and all of you will be blessed if you do what he says. But a man saying that he was, his words were the trustworthy words that could be put into practice um, to um, keep you safe. Uh, in the Psalms, many a psalm talks about God being a refuge to those who seek him, those who do his, his, his will. Jesus is now saying, his words are the refuge. The storm is coming, and the refuge is his words. Lifting himself up to, um, to God's, um, or to, the, to his words up to the standard of, of, of God's own good word. Um. And that's, I think, key to remember when we think about putting God's word into practice is that this is coming from a good authority who wants to help you. When, when Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but treasure in heaven, he's not trying to rob you. He's trying to help. He is the, the greatest economist of all time. He understands trade and bartering and shipping and capitalism and socialism. And, and, and he's like, it doesn't matter what your economic, economic excuse me economic system is. Live your money this way and be blessed by it. When he, he talks about, you know, restrictions, rules, laws for marriage, it's not to take from you. It is the author of intimacy saying, you have been born with a desire to be intimate. And you see people out in the world to whom you are drawn to be intimate. If you want to be blessed in that, do it his way. He's trying to help, and he's always been trying to help. Um, so, the another difference, of course, is that Jesus used an illustration. Usually used illustrations. There's even a verse that says Jesus often spoke in parables. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't come out, as Moses just said, be blessed, be cursed. Jesus comes out and says, your life is like this house. So, why this illustration? What is the imagery of this um, illustration? When, when Jesus used an illustration, he was usually, almost always, appealing to his audience by telling them a story of something familiar to them, something they would recognize. be like, oh yes, I know that. And if you've ever looked at a map of where his ministry was, it was a coastal community. Most of these people had had grown up, would have lived, been very familiar with what it means to be on the coast and have a storm come washing in, a hurricane. Uh, We've had some bad storms here in the uh, peninsula these last uh, few months, but I, I think every house I've seen is still standing. There's that one sign down on, like, Ralston that got blown over um, and was like, splinters. But uh, for the most part, our houses have stood. But I have seen storms of this magnitude or really the aftermath. So, 18 years ago, I was working for a church in Michigan, and when Hurricane Katrina hit Mississippi, our church was connected to a church in Mississippi, and we drove down and we spent a week doing just different work projects. Um, and I got to see houses that had weathered this storm in various states of survival. And some did okay. There was this one house. Uh, this family had us over. And it was, in ma- it was inland a few miles and higher elevation. And so their house was standing uh, except that the back porch had been carried off by this tiny little stream behind them. Like the, the, the rain had fallen and the stream had risen and picked up their back porch and carried it three houses downstream. Kind of funny actually to see <laughs> like just a random staircase in a, in a stream. Um, another house we saw uh, was very close to the shore, but not on the shore itself. And it had been completely blown out by the flood waters of Hurricane Katrina. The doors were off the frame. The windows had been blasted out. There was no furniture in it at all. So even standing on the street, you could see straight through the house. Um, and one of the houses, this was kind of funny, people had come afterwards and thrown toilet paper all over the house. Um, They were stout people. These these people down in Pascoeville, Mississippi, like they were were laughing about it. They were were finding humor and humility as they faced this this rebuilding process. But this house that was barely standing, covered in toilet paper, as if To say, ha ha, "Ha, ha, ruined your house. Um, Good people. Uh, But then we did go down and we saw the shore, where the houses that had built on sand had been, because they were not there anymore. Um, It was just a beach with, like, splinters of wood. And one of those houses actually belonged to then-Mississippi Senator Trent Lott, who was a long-time congressman and senator from Mississippi, one of the most powerful people, maybe the most powerful person in Mississippi, and his house had been wiped from the face of the earth. So what's Jesus saying to the people with this illustration? they would know these storms as, as we, as I got to see the aftermath of these storms. And what I learned in that trip to Mississippi is it doesn't really matter who you are. You know, richest person, most powerful person in the state, good, stout, strong work ethic, sense of humor. You know, when you're, when the storm comes, it matters. Where's your house? <laughs> what was its foundation? That's it. There are things that are so essential that All other things being equal, it can't be replaced. And in a house, that's the foundation. And the life of a person who wants to follow God, it is doing it. Right? Like, that's the only thing When he says. A person hears these words and does it. Hears these words, doesn't, or does it, doesn't do it. Puts them into practice, doesn't put them into practice. That's the only variable for the scientists. We have a lot of scientists in this church. We have like a, we over index on the like scientists, research scientists. I know you always love to isolate your variables. This analogy or this teaching from Jesus has one variable. Are you doing what he said? Which then raises the question, kind of our final question why don't we just do what he says? I mean, it's not. That complicated it's, it doesn 't seem that hard, but something comes and, and, and gets gets in the way of, of doing god 's word after you 've heard it and um, the company I work for uh, works in online ads, uh, one of our services is online ads, you know like the papa i 'm sorry <laughs> i 'm so sorry <laughs> but like you know you you um, you're on a web page and you click on something and before you get to what it was you actually clicked on and one is something else pops up a video an ad sometimes a whole different landing page a different website and you're like is that what i wanted so i i was taught the uh the technical term for that it's an interstitial ad interstitial ad my the the, the ad people i work with yeah lois raised the game last week for vocabulary from the platform so i i needed a big word <laughs> Um, An interstitial ad is something that is inserted into your flow of, you know, uh, a web page or if you're watching a video and it stops. So I think the same thing happens to us with God's Word, that we hear it Jesus' Word, and it seems to make sense, but then something else comes along that between what we heard and what we do something inserts itself in the middle and that this causes us to put into practice something else. Most of us don't hear Jesus' word, go home, sit just on a chair and do nothing all day. We are putting something into practice, but not His Word. So what is it? Where does it come from? Um, Well, why is the gate that leads to destruction. So there's a lot of things we could talk about, but I want to talk about just a few that I, I, I know that I think the Word warns us about. Um, and to do that, I want to start by going back to Moses one last time uh, in his charge at the end of Deuteronomy. He, he warned the people, don't turn to other gods and other teachings. And if you read the Old Testament, you spend any amount of time in the Old Testament, you would see that for the people of Israel, really from the beginning, you know, certainly from Moses on, Uh, There was this this constant battle of not going after other gods, not going to the altars of Baal or Asherah poles and this. um, And that was a major concern. The Sermon on the Mount has actually had very little to say about other gods, about idolatry. It still was a problem. We see it a little bit in Uh, different parts of the New Testament. But the issue that Jesus has been dealing with, I think, most of the time, and certainly in the Sermon on the Mount, is when people take God's word and twist it, and then put that into practice. God's distorted words. Um, And this we see really throughout the Sermon on the Mount, right? When he says, you've heard it said, but I say. Often those, you've heard it said, were things about God's words, God's good law that Moses had laid out that had been taken and distorted. And then people were putting that into practice. So prayer had been given to the people so that you would get down on your knees and beg God for help because you can't face today without him. And in the time of Jesus, it had become something that you were like, look at me! Look at my prayer! Can you hear me in the back as I pray? Can everybody see me? complete distortion of why we had been given prayer. Um, You know, we had been given charity. The Old Testament, if you haven't read it lately, uh, particularly the Law of Moses, particularly Deuteronomy, is replete with taking care of other people. Just every page. It's, It's not, there's not like a single section, like, here's how to be charitable. It's constant. It's like, when you harvest and some grain falls on the ground, just leave it there so the people in need can come and get it. When you enter the land and there's foreigners in the land, be good to them because God was good to you when you were a trespasser and a foreigner in the land. Just constant, similar to the Sermon on the Mount. He keeps coming back to this like, and then when you give, and as you're charitable, and so charity had been given to God's people to be a sign that they were God's people. Those are the teachings when Moses is saying, put these, sorry, when it was said, choose life. One of the choose life was be charitable to other people. Jesus didn't add that. He fulfilled it, but he didn't add it. But in, 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 in Jesus' time, maybe in our time too, it's like, here's my giant check. Can I get a giant check? Because I'm giving my gift to people. So it wasn't that people were completely turning their back on God's law. They were putting into practice a distorted version of God's law. And even in the warnings that um, Ty, our guest uh, teacher, was talking about two weeks ago, and Lois was talking about last week, it was about teachers that would come and twist the word and distort the word. False teachers or people who would just spout on about themselves and do awesome things but not be putting God's Word into practice. And I think that this warning is really important for us because you all came to church at 9 30 in the morning on a Sunday and you all have tuned in online when no one can even see you to take part in a church service, we are people who on some level want to put God's word into practice. We have not completely turned our, our hand up to God and said, no, I don't want your ways. Certainly that still exists. There are other religions in the world, followed by millions of people who are simply following other gods. They're right where Moses was in, De- in Deuteronomy 30. Certainly there are people more common, I think, in our community here in, in the United States who are just atheists. who are just like, there's nothing there. You know, we humans, we're just flesh puppets. Um, that's cute that you think that, Christian, if that makes you happy, good for you. Like, that exists. Other religions and atheisms and other ways. And, um, but I think for us, the greater threat is that we would hear God's word, twist it to our own liking, put that into practice, and then think, but I'm doing it. I'm I'm putting God's Word into practice. And so I want to uh, take just a little bit of time, our remaining time, 10 minutes-ish, just to talk about how we can watch out for, protect ourselves, put Jesus' Word into practice as He intended it. Um, And to do that, we're going back to Deuteronomy, of course, we have, (laughs) it's all there, it's all there. Jesus said He came to fulfill that law. It's it's, it's so much of what he said, particularly here in the Sermon on the Mount, makes so much more sense when you have Deuteronomy sort of floating in your head. Um, Not just Deuteronomy, but Deuteronomy is sort of the summary. Um, But in Deuteronomy, it says, Deuteronomy 4, uh, do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I give you. Um, This... Concept, do not add, do not take away. It appears twice in the Bible, once here in Deuteronomy and the other in Revelations. Actually, the last word of the entire Bible. Do not add, do not take away. And this is the threat to those who would attempt to put God's word into practice, but be diverted along the way, that you would take, you would hear some of what God says, do a little plus, a little subtraction, and then do that. Um, the additions actually started very, very, very early. Talk about adding to God's word. Um, some of us in the church are doing a Bible app. Um, we've been doing like a daily reading, New Testament psalms. And for people who are up to date uh, just read in Acts chapter 14, 15, 16, how in the very beginning of the church, there were people who wanted to come and say, no, no, faith in Jesus and repentance, that's not enough. You also have to have the Jewish laws and customs and get circumcised. And... You know, this is several years into it. The people who were talking about it had still known Jesus personally, and already the additions were coming in. Jesus isn't enough. You've got to do this. And they had a council. They had a meeting where they did three things. They They consulted God's word. They debated with each other, and they prayed to the spirits for guidance. That is, they consulted God's word. They debated with each other, and they sought the spirit's help for guidance in prayer, and they came to a conclusion that it, no... The Jewish law, that was for a purpose, for a time. God had put it into place to bring us to this moment of Jesus, but it is no longer necessary. So tell all the uh, people who are converting to Christianity who were not Jewish growing up, they don't have to worry about, God, about the Jewish law. They have to worry about God's law. They don't have to worry about Jewish customs. Um, and so they were protected from that addition. Um, and additions to God's law, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of all of church history. Right? You know, you think back, I think back, ninth grade history, world history, we spent a week on Catholicism. We talked about indulgences, right? I know, some of you are thinking way, high school was way back. <laughs> but, but that was the practice where you would, you, would, you know, you're, you're doing your penance, you're, you're trying to show repentance, and then also you would open up your pocketbook and pay a little money uh, to the priest to raise your status. This little addition. Seeking Jesus isn't enough, we've got to pay. In our own time, We could go on and on about the additions. Um, If I were to try to summarize what I see, and I invite you to consider this, but also search your own life for the additions that you see. There is, for our community, West Coast Christians in the 21st century, just something about success, about prosperity, that God loves me and my house should be awesome. You know, God loves me, but when I get sick, I'm not so sure. You know, God loves me, but I want to look good at work. Or I want to look good at school. Or even ministry. You know, I've been, um, I'm a a lay elder. That's a technical term for volunteer elder (laughs) in the church right now. But I have worked for churches in the past. I've been in uh, the the mission field in the past. and, And even ministry, those additions can come in. You can get caught up in, you know, how did I sound? Or how many people came? Or, you know, I'm writing a prayer letter to the partners, and are they going to like what they hear? Are they going to continue to give? Um, So really those additions can sneak in even to the best of intentions, to the best of places. And we need to be on constant watch against the distortions that come from additions to Jesus' Word. And we protect ourselves just as the early church did. Consult the Word. Get together and debate. Pray for guidance. Um, Equally distorting, however, is to subtract from God's word. Uh, We take a little something out of context. We surround it with whatever it is we wanted in its place and then we, we put that into practice. And this is how, just one example here, this is how Christianity, Christianity, small c, put it in quotes, it's painful to even say. Christianity was used to prop up slavery in America for several hundred years, and it was through a distortion of God's Word. There's a book uh, some of you may have heard of or seen the movie 12 Years a Slave. It's a memoir uh, written by a man named Solomon Northup. He was born free in New York, kidnapped, uh, transported to Louisiana, sold into slavery where where he was for 12 years, uh, when he was then rescued, freed, and sent back to, uh, brought back to to New York. And he Observed, he was a God-fearing man, and he observed how Christianity was used throughout uh, Louisiana to prop up um, uh, slavery. And I, I, he, he tells the story. I'm going to repeat the story. It, it's it's just offensive, but it's it's what happened. Um, every Sunday, or many Sundays, the slave masters would give sermons to their slaves. And one Sunday, a uh, the slave master gave this this message. He, from Luke 12:47, which I'm not putting up because it's just offensive, but this is, this is something Jesus said. Uh, the, 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 the slave person said, the servant, quoting here, the servant who knows his master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. Stop. So that's Luke 12:47, spoken by Jesus. And this man went on to say to his slave, so when I beat you many, many times, that's scripture. And it's, it is. It's offensive. It's chilling. It's wrong. But why was it wrong? Like, like, try. I'm a lawyer, so just be cold-blooded with me for a second and think, why was he wrong? He's subtracted from God's word. He's taking a single sentence from a parable. Luke 12, is a, it's, a, it's a parable. And remember, we know, because we're talking about the storms today, Jesus is not giving real estate advice when he says, build on the rock. It's it's a parable, an appeal to the familiar. And so he was saying to his listeners, Jesus was saying, you know how masters treat their servants. And then he went on to say something else. If this man, this slave driver, had you know, finished Luke 12, or all of Luke, or Deuteronomy, he would know. You treat your servants well. You treat foreigners well. You set your servants free after a reasonable period of time. Like it was just one extraction, one little tiny piece of something Jesus said. But it was something Jesus had said, but it had been distorted. It had been ruined hundreds of years of people being uh, treated despicably, propped up by these little picks and and pricks of God's Word. Now, most of us, when we subtract from God's Word, don't cause that level of devastation because we don't have that much power. But it still ruins lives when you take and you pick and you pull little tiny pieces. And, you know, every Sunday— Uh, the person who stands here, stands and gives you little pieces of Scripture. (laughs) But every person who comes up here, I believe, I know I do, has has made a pact with you that when we pull a little something out, if you put it back in, it will still say the exact same thing. Like I just put up Deuteronomy 4.2. I invite you to read all of Deuteronomy 4 and all of Deuteronomy and the entire Law of Moses and see if I twisted that. Please. And if you think I have... Come and debate with me and tell me, hey, I don't think you actually had Deuteronomy right there because I would like to know so that I put it into practice correctly. So yeah, Jesus quoted individual scriptures, but you can take it and you can put it back in its full context and it will still mean the same thing. Um, So Peter, a follower of Jesus who spent his life putting Jesus' words into practice, uh, wrote two letters, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. And he, in one of his letters, he references Paul, another man who spent his life putting Jesus' words into practice. And Peter said of Paul, as we kind of come to the end of this distortion discussion, um, here in Second Peter, uh, Peter writing said, His, that is Paul's, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. So a few things here. First of all, Read all of 2 Peter and make sure that I use this the right, the right way. But I did, because Second Peter is all about, is all about um, understanding you know, the word of God that has been preached from the early prophets, calling us to a life of holiness under our master God, the Lord of heaven and earth, and to not be distracted by those who would come and distort it, which he summarizes here in Second uh, uh, Peter 3.16. Um, this verse is often quoted... Uh, For those who like to understand, why do we include Paul's letters in Scripture? Because it's evidence that, in fact, even in Paul's time, Peter, who knew Jesus personally, was already talking about Paul's words as if they were Scripture. Um, So that's why it's normally quoted. I actually wanted to look at a couple other aspects about it today, which is what we've been talking about here now for a few minutes, which is uh, people try to distort Scripture. It's a constant threat. You know, yes, there are, in, there are people who will simply tell you to just ignore God completely. Just be an atheist, you know, be a Buddhist, be whatever you want to be, ignore God. But to us, to us, the threat is distortion. Um, and it ends in destruction, right? Blessings, curses, life, death. Distortion leads to destruction. Um, and the other reason I, this verse comforts me, and I think is important here as we reach the Sermon on the Mount, is... Peter admits sometimes things are hard to understand. Sometimes the first reading, you don't get it. (laughs) You know, you look at what Paul is saying and, and, or what Jesus said or what Moses wrote, and it's like, yeah, I, the first reading, I, I I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get it. Um, you know, when I was in, in, in high school, I became a Christian in high school, joined a church, and there was like this, uh, Try sort to of joke that people talk about when they would have like their time with God. It's like, you know, you just take your Bible and you pop it open, and whatever verse it lands on, just read that, and that's the verse the, the Spirit has for you that day. That might be true, but I gotta tell you, there's really nothing in the whole book that would support that approach. You know, we're reading in Acts again, those who have been doing the the um, the the Bible, the week, the daily reading, and and they would get together and go week after week after week and reason through the scriptures, convincing people, showing people that Jesus was the Messiah. It, it, it says that uh, they commended the Bereans because they heard Paul and they're like, that's neat, but I need to read this for myself. Um, there's no real support that you can just see it once and like, I got it. You've got to work through it. Some of it is very difficult. And some of the Sermon on the Mount is really difficult. And when there's difficulty, there is the temptation to distort. I don't want what, what I first saw. I need to turn this into something I can handle. And so uh, I encourage you, um, don't let that happen to you. Uh, continue to wrestle, continue to, um, uh, to strain, to, to apply your readings and your understanding of what Jesus is saying to rigor, like a scientist uh, would you know, to their hypotheses. Uh, there's actually a fun story uh, as we come towards the end here. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you've heard him quoted many, many, many times throughout our Sermon on the Mount series. He wrote a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, which is quite good, and that's part of why he keeps coming in. But he put the word to rigor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor uh, who opposed the Nazis. And there's a story in, in, in one of his biographies that he, um, he would get in debates. He had these, like, weekend retreats, With these young men they would go and they would you know have races and sports apparently he's a super competitive guy so he liked to win all the races and they'd play like foosball and he always wanted to win and then he'd have scripture debates and he always wanted to win Uh, and they would go back and forth and uh whenever one of his friends would get him would sort of like nail him was like well Dietrich what about this verse and and he was beaten he would just pretend he hadn't heard he'd be like oh i'm sorry what was that last part and then he would just bust out laughing but he was also admitting that he was wrong. Um, that he had seen the scripture in a better light than his initial reading. So even someone that you might read, you know, a favorite author, someone like Bonhoeffer or C.S. Lewis or Tozer, like, put him to rigor. The, Dietrich Bonhoeffer put himself to rigor. He put his own scriptural you know, interpretations to rigor. So we too should be putting our own understandings to rigor. So uh, as we come to the end here, what to do. How to protect ourselves from the distortions. How to keep His words truly and only His words. Um, Nothing shocking, just good reminders. Do read the Bible. Read scripture. Uh, Read it in solitude. Read it in a group. You know, we have our Bible studies, life groups um, that meet and we talk about God's word in part to make sure that we're not just going off on a flight of our own fancy, thinking what we want to think. And sometimes it's hard. Uh, but it is good uh, to, 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 to test what you think you're hearing, to, to put your thoughts out there. Um, I do encourage you, this is, when I, this is some of my own life, but also what I see very much Jesus talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, keep watch for like, the usual suspects, for, for, for pride and fear. Um, pride that would cause you to look at Jesus' word and then have an interpretation that sort of lifts yourself up. That you're higher than other people, as the um, Pharisees were doing with their long prayers and their grand gifts. If you have an interpretation of Scripture that like causes you to believe that you're better than someone, it's distorted. It's just broken. That is not something that Jesus would ever teach you. But also watch out for fear. And this has been throughout the Sermon on the Mount: fear of losing your wealth, fear of losing pleasures, fear of losing your reputation. If you have a, an interpretation that is pushing you to be afraid of something, that you're not sure God's gonna be there for you, that's a distortion. God is always there for you. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of whom he provided for. He's the God of heaven and earth. He's the God who took his people out of Israel. He's the God who sent his son to die on the cross. He will provide for you. So if your interpretation is full of fear, your interpretation has become distorted. He's always there for you, and it's always good. Um, third, I do encourage you to step out in faith and start doing things. I don't, I don't think you should just take your Bible and go find a quiet place and just work the scriptures until you've got it perfect, and only then put the word into practice. We do need to step out in faith, believing that God will change us even along the way. Uh, several years ago, when I was in high school, um, still... <laughs> We, our church would go down to Mexico every summer. So I grew up in Seattle, Washington. Um, and we would go down to Mexico every summer to do a service project. And the second time I did it, we broke down in Barstow, California, like five times over two days. Um, we think that maybe the mechanic was like breaking something. And, but like we were, So we drove down Seattle all the way to Southern California. We're good. We're going through Mojave Desert. We're going through Barstow. We break down two days in Barstow, and it was so frustrating for me. I was just, I, 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 but I didn't know why. Everyone was having fun. Like my youth pastor, he turned it into a game. He said, everyone take a pop song and rework the lyrics to be about our time in Barstow. Um, and um, I won't sing, or <laughs> right, I'll sing. So one person took Feeling Groovy, <laughs> and they turned it into Back in Barstow. It was like, do, 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 do. Back in Barstow, and it was it was hilarious except to me. I was so angry and I couldn't figure out why. And then I I actually stormed out of like a prayer circle. I just was angry and I I was I was, I was talking to my youth pastor and he's like, what's going on? And as we talked we realized that I liked to look good serving God. And when we would get to Mexico and like I would be there like working on the orphanage and we really were working on an orphanage. Like like I wanted to get down and do that work and and get to where I was looking good and we're just stuck in Barstow doing nothing. Nothing to be impressive about what I'm doing and my youth pastor leaned in and said, Jomo, I get that but here's the thing. You don't dictate to God how you serve him. And it's a great word. 30 years ago I heard that. I still need to learn it and apply it but I learned it As I was trying to put God's word into practice, I was on a mission trip. I was going down to Mexico. I was doing the work. And in the midst of it, Jesus was unwinding my distortions. Uh, And the last thing is just pray. You know, this is spiritual work. This isn't just our minds. It's not just how well you argue. I've spent a lot of time talking about how important it is to argue. But we do need to pray just as the early church did, right? When they had a distortion in their church, they consulted the word. They got together and debated. uh, and they prayed. And Jesus told his disciples his, his ways would only make sense to them if they prayed. He just finished earlier on in the Sermon on the Mount saying, here at the end, pray in my name that you can do this. So those are the things. Um, you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount is hard to summarize, so I didn't really try. Uh, but instead, you know, we have followed what Jesus did, which is to come to the end and give a series of 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 admonitions, of encouragement, exhortations, warning that this is meant for your life, meant to be what you would do with your life. And so, with that, let me pray, um, and we'll do what's next. Um, God, thanks for this time. I do pray for these people here today, um, and for myself, and for our friends on live stream, our brothers and sisters, our friends who are traveling for spring break, that we would be people who hear your word, and through your power, through the community of the believers you've given us, through your spirit and through your word, understand it and put it into practice so that we would be blessed. We would have the good news that you want us to have and the good lives that you want us to have. We can't do this without you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.